0: Today we begin a new series. It'll take us through um, the whole month of April. It's going to be focused on a subject called the kingdom of God. It's interesting that the books we love and the movies we really enjoy all tend to have similar themes that echo themes of the scriptures. And one of those dominant themes is this battle between good overcoming evil. That there's some evil force in this world that rises up and enslaves or traps people and they feel hopeless until a hero rises up and leads a revolt against that power and overcomes. So we have the Star Wars and we have Chronicles of Narnia and Lord of the Rings and we have a lot of Disney movies are based on that kind of a theme and uh, all the Avengers and and DC Comics Marvel movies that are coming out, Aquaman, Superman, Spider-Man, Iron Man, every kind of man. You know that's out there that has a superpower and a woman. You know they can rise up and lead a, a, a an attack against this evil power that's risen. Well, isn't that the story of Scripture? Isn't that story of what God has done in the Bible, of God raising up a hero named Jesus Christ to overcome the evil in this world? The difference is all those other stories are fiction, kind of made up. But what the Bible talks about is the real story, and that's why it resonates so deeply with us last year i took a course on the biblical narrative the overarching story of the bible and as we went through many of the books a a verse jumped out at me that i never looked at in a particular way and it's a verse found in mark chapter one now if you've been reading the bible with us we're going through a bible reading plan that just started on this past monday on mark chapter one if you're not reading the bible right now would like to join us Pick up a copy of this reading plan at the Welcome Center or Connection Counter. It's just a bite of Scripture every day. It'll get you thinking about Jesus, especially get you in preparation for Easter. But in this um, in this uh, verse that I found in Mark chapter one is where John the Baptist announces this: "The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. What is the gospel?" I've always believed the gospel is the message that was just proclaimed from the baptism. Jesus died for our sins, was buried, was raised from the dead. That's the gospel message. That's the good news, right? Problem is, Jesus hadn't even arrived on the scene yet. He hadn't died on a cross. Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead. In fact, Jesus hadn't even preached a sermon yet. He's just about to meet John the Baptist get baptized. So what is the good news that people are believing in? What is the, the message that's being proclaimed even before Jesus died on the cross? That message is an important message, but it's part of a bigger message. There's a bigger story going on that God wants us to know. It's the story about the good news of the kingdom. And in order to understand it, you, you really need to understand some of the culture of that day. See, Rome was in power over Palestine, and even though Herod was placed, as a ruler, to kind of be the go-between, the one to keep the Jews under control and yet pay homage to the Caesars. Rome had a very high view of their emperors. In fact, when Julius Caesar, in the years before Christ, came back from a military conquest, the people said he was the unconquered God, and they erected statues to him. They, they built his home to be like a temple. They actually assigned a man named Mark Antony to be his priest, And they put him on the level of Jupiter and Mars, not the planets, but the the gods, Jupiter and Mars. And so when he died and his his son, uh, Caesar Augustus, took over, he was immediately identified as the son of a god. And he leveraged this reputation to the hilt. He made himself the chief priest of Rome. He offered sacrifices to the gods. He repaired some of the ancient temples to the gods, 82 temples, in fact. And uh, he ushered in an era of peace in Rome that lasted for over 200 years. And people said, wow, he's, he is messianic. In fact, one of the statements about him, and this is shortly before the birth of Christ in 9 BC, speaks of him in these terms. These are some of the words that were spoken of him back then. He is the most divine. He is the beginning of all things. He is the good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. They called him Savior. They called him God. And then get this, he is good news for the whole world. You know what that is? He is the gospel for the whole world. Who? Caesar Augustus. So in this context of the Caesars being worshipped, that's why it was so powerful to say Caesar is Lord. It's not just like he's not just my king. He's my spiritual authority. But when, when Jesus is coming to John the Baptist, and John Baptist is preparing people for this new age of time, he's saying, "The king is here. The real king has arrived." And he's heralding this message of the arrival of a new era that's beginning with the person of Christ. And so when Jesus comes, his predominant message, you read through the gospels he you're saying, what's the, a what's the theme Jesus comes to again and again and again? It's the kingdom of God. He, he says, the kingdom of God is, is like this. And he'll tell a parable. And he'll say things like, the kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom is in your midst. Meaning it's right here, right before you. See, people have had various views of the kingdom through history. The Jews believe that The kingdom was going to be like the old kingdoms, like the kingdom of David and the kingdom of Solomon. That there would be a a physical earthly king who would rally his armies and defeat all the, the neighboring enemies of Israel. This was not the kind of king Jesus came to be. There are many through church history who viewed the kingdom as something future this is something that's, that's in the millennial age. This is coming in the future. It doesn't, doesn't touch us. It doesn't affect us. We're the church, but the kingdom is something totally different. And yet when you read through the scriptures, there's, this, there's a sense that the kingdom is happening right now. There's something that's happening right now. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's not just future. It's right now, but it is future and that it endures. And so we're finding as we read through the gospels that, that this kingdom is such a powerful thing that Jesus came to establish a relentlessly strong, expanding, and lasting kingdom. And not only that, he's extending an invitation for you and me to be part of it. His kingdom is one that's for all people. Now, if you were to the kingdom of God in a phrase, uh, what would it look like? Well, the Bible doesn't really come out and say it specifically like that, but there are enough scriptures that give us a pretty... Pretty good picture of what the kingdom of God is. My definition would be this the kingdom of God is where Jesus Christ rules over the hearts of people who willingly submit to his loving authority. He is not a tyrant, but he's powerful. And those who follow him do so willingly. They come under his rule, under his authority, choose to follow him. He is different than the despots of history, those who ruled with an iron fist. And his kingdom is tied to him. The kingdom is all about the king. It has nothing to do with territory as if there's, there's walls around a, a geographical plot of land. The kingdom begins with the king. And so when Jesus says seek first the, the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well, he's not saying go look for a place like the magic kingdom or the United Kingdom. He's saying seek first to have Jesus be king of your life. Live under his kingship and all these things you strive for that you need in life, he'll take care of those for you. Seek first. In fact, I think a real clear definition comes from the Lord's Prayer. Most of us grew up learning the Lord's Prayer. There's a a set in the Lord's Prayer, a couple lines that say this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those two phrases are parallel. Your kingdom come. What does that mean? Well, I'll explain it to you. God's will being done. That's what it is. God's kingdom comes wherever God's will is being done. That's why we help usher in God's kingdom. When we obey God's will, we're allowing God's kingdom to be evident in our lives. Your family just now, that was a kingdom moment. That was a kingdom moment because you were surrendering to Jesus, doing his will. Those of you who gave, when you honor the Lord in that way, that's surrendering to Jesus, that's honoring him, as the king of your life. And so we have that privilege of recognizing Jesus as our authority in our lives. Now, later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, now, it's not just a matter of saying it. It's just not a matter of profession. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So again, it's connected to doing the will, doing the will of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who seeks to do the will of God. I, I come back to this quite often because people will wonder, I wonder if that person's a Christian. I wonder if you know, that relative who died was a Christian. Well, did they make a lifestyle that was very evident they were seeking to do the will of God? If not, I'm real doubtful that they're a Christian because that's what it means to be a father. Does it, you can go through the rituals You can go to church and be baptized and say prayers, but it really comes down to this. Am I doing the will of the Father? That's what it means to be part of the kingdom, and that's how things began on planet Earth. Adam and Eve are placed in a garden. They're given all these extravagant things, and God says, they're all yours. They are for yours to enjoy, but there's one restriction. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so, really, what God is saying, I'm your creator, I'm your king. I'll take care of you. I'll, I'll give you an abundant supply of what you need. But I do want to know that I am your king. Because Adam and Eve rejected God and listened to the voice of the serpent, they were removed from the garden. And that same kind of attitude, that same behavior happened with their kids and the generation to follow and the generation to follow. It says that, that the wickedness spread over the earth and so God, in a sense, wiped the slate clean and said, let's try it over with, with Noah's family. Let's try it over again and the same kind of behavior proceeded from the families after Noah. In fact, when God says, I want you to scatter and, and fill the earth, he says, no, 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 we're not going to do that. We're going to stay right here in and, and Babel, and we're going to build a tower to ourselves. And God says, no, you're not. And he separates them. Now, there's an interesting passage in the book of Deuteronomy that says that God sent the nations out to the, to the sons of God. And that's a phrase that's often tied to spiritual beings God sent them out to, to be under the power of the, of the spirit beings out there in the, the pagan land. But God says in that passage in Deuteronomy 32, but I kept one family for me, the family of Jacob. And so God takes this family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Lion of Israel, says that'll be my family. And what God was trying to do was say, I want the world to see what happens when a nation lives under my kingship. I want them to be the, the model for the rest of the world to see what it's like to live with, with this all-powerful God who fights their battles, who provides abundantly for them. And not only that, that God would then say, then you will be my witnesses to the rest of the earth. You'll be the ones to, to speak to others about the awesomeness of your God. And yet they failed on both respects. They didn't trust God, and they didn't communicate his goodness to other nations. In fact, there was this continual pattern of Just like Adam and Eve, rejecting God and listening to this other voice. Now here's here's where we run into problems because the issue is God is the rightful king and he's constantly being rejected. The rightful king is being rejected. Why is he the rightful king? Because he made us. This is his world. And isn't it a beautiful world? Hasn't God provided abundantly for us? And yet, for some reason, we look at this world and go, ah, I think it just happened. I think, I think someone else put it here. It just kind of evolved, or Mother Nature gave it to us. And we don't give God, as Romans 1 says, we, do, we neither give him thanks or glorify him as God. And so we continually ignore God and don't give him what's due him. But David, who was one of the greatest kings in the Old Testament, knew that there was a king above him. And so if you read through the Psalms, you'll hear phrases like this spoken of his king. Psalm 22, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Who's the great king? It's God. And all the nations are ruled over by him. Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Who's the great king? Well, I'll tell you. It's the Lord, strong and mighty. It's the Lord, mighty in battle. And then David said in Psalm 29, The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. On and on it goes, all through Psalms. Who's the king? It's God. God is the great king. And God wants to be the king, worthy of our trust. And yet, when you follow the the pattern of the nation of Israel, there's this continued pattern of rejecting God and coming under the power of the gods of the lands. And so we come to the book of 1 Samuel, and this is just an unbelievable event. The people basically say, ah, God's not doing a really good job. We'd like a different God. So they come to the prophet Samuel. It says, all the elders, this is found in 1 Samuel 8, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. We, we want to be like all the other nations. You know, they've got a king that's in power and he lives in a palace and he's got armies and he goes fights their battles. That's what, that's what we want. We, it's kind of weird trusting in this invisible God. Can't see him, can't, 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 you know, look around the corner and say, there he is. We're the weird ones. We really like to be like everybody else. So that's what we want. We want a king like everybody else. But, you know, Samuel didn't like that. It says, this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Because up to this point in history, they never had a king. They say, we don't like that. Want to be like everybody else? Give us a king. And you think God would say, let's, let's, let's wipe them from the earth and start over. But he says, you know what? Samuel, I know this angers you, but, well, it's kind of the Burger King motto. Have it your way. I'm going to let them have it their way. Give them what they want. Tell them that they will get a king. But also tell them this. When they have an earthly king... That he's not going to be perfect, and he's going to disappoint them in many ways, and he's going to bring some dark times along the way. But they're okay with that. They accept Saul as their first king, and Saul starts off good, but quickly degenerates because of his pride. He's followed by David. David. David, uh, David has his shining moments, but then he also um, goes off into the dark side when he commits adultery and kills uh, Bathsheba's husband, and then his whole family starts to unravel. And then Solomon comes along, and Solomon seems like he's this wise king who knows the right thing to do, but he begins to marry all these women from foreign lands and welcomes them into his city and into his home, and these women worship other gods, and he says, you yeah, know, bring your gods with you. We'll, we'll be one happy family. And then god 's saying, "What are you doing you, you met me in a vision. I gave you wisdom solomon what are you what are you thinking And so God allows the kingdom to be severed it 's split into two and so a group of, of the tribes merge over here, and they 're they the, 're called the tri- the nation of Israel and, and Judah 's over here of a couple other tribes and if you look at the history of then the kings who ruled ruled over them read through first and second kings and chronicles and all these stories of well Israel every single king that's listed under Israel's list of kings they're all wicked every single one of them well they look at the other side on Judah most of them were wicked some of them did some good things but even those either turned toward evil later in their life or their children their sons that followed after them took them back to evil and they continued to drift further and further from the Lord until God said you know what This has gone on for too long. I'm going to allow you to face the consequences of your constant rejection of me. So God allows the Assyrian army to come in, takes one of the groups away. allows the Babylonians to come in, takes the other group away. And now they're left with the foreign gods. See, God, God made it easy for them to love them, but they chose to be like everybody else. And what they didn't realize, that in rejecting God... They were listening to this rebellious voice. The voice of someone maybe they didn't recognize, but it was the voice of Satan. But Satan really is the one behind all the rebellion in the world, the one whispering to us to, to turn away from God, to not trust him. He, he's the one that speaks to the gods of the nations, even through human leaders. And we know um, a lot about Satan in the Bible. Uh, he's called by many names the adversary, the father of lies, the murderer from the beginning the accuser of the brethren, a lot of different titles for this character named Satan. We also get a picture of him um, in a description of one of the the kings, one of the the pagan kings, that he's much like Lucifer, who was an angel created with great power and beauty, but how his arrogance to be worshipped as God caused him to be um, cast out of heaven. And you you might remember Jesus made a statement once that I saw Satan fall like lightning. That may very well be a, a a statement of, I remember the day that he was cast out of heaven, and it was fast, and he now roams this earth, and, and how Satan has risen in powers through people who said, I, I don't want to listen to God, I want to listen to whatever other voice is out there. Well, he's the other voice, and by listening to his voice and giving ourselves to him unwittingly, we have aligned ourselves with him, and he is this rebel king. See, this rebel king has been accepted in the place of God. When, when Jesus came on the scene, there's three primary activities that characterize his ministry. He preached and ta- taught. He healed people. And he cast out demons. If you go back in the Old Testament and look at the great prophets, they, they spoke God's word. And oftentimes they could heal too. But one thing you don't see prevalent at all in the Old Testament is Casting out of demons. Now, why is that? Why, why don't we find that happening? Was it because there were no demons back in the Old Testament? Well, that's not true because there are references to shadim. It's a Hebrew word for demons. There's also references to like King Saul had an evil spirit enter him at different times and start chucking javelins at David. We see them present, but there's nobody who has the power to oppose them. And so Jesus walks on the scene. It's not like demons all of a sudden just came into being when Jesus arrived. They, they were there, and they were causing harm in people's lives. And so Jesus arrives, and it's like they start coming out of the woodwork. It reminds me of the bug zappers back in Wisconsin. You know, in the summer, uh, we get a lot of bugs that fly. And mosquitoes are, 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 should be our state bird because they're so prevalent in my home state. And so people put up these, these bug zappers in the backyard, and they'll sit on their back porch with their favorite beverage and for entertainment in the evening just listen to the bzz, bzz, bzz. and it just kind of feels good to know there's one less mosquito living in your backyard the problem is they're attracting mosquitoes from everywhere in their neighborhood to your backyard and it's like when jesus came on the scene all the demons started manifesting themselves in people's lives and what i notice when i read the gospels about these demons is they are so clear about the identity of Jesus when they see Jesus they will call him who he is he is the son of God or the son of man and they're, they're afraid of him and they'll say don't, 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 don't do this to us don't cast us out don't drive us away you know they know Jesus they know his power while everyone else is scratching their head going I don't know who this guy is is he, is he from God is he from Satan we don't know who he is but the demons are very clear sometimes I wish we had the clarity of a demon about Jesus they know who he is and they tremble. And so the, the demons start to come out. And in one case, in the story in the book of Matthew, Jesus encounters a man. He can't see, can't speak because of a demon and what he's done to him. His, his physical ailments are connected to the presence of a demon. So he drives this demon out of this man. And people are watching, and they're amazed. And some people say, wow, is this this guy the son of David? Is this the Messiah? And the religious leader says, no, no, no. He's, he's following Beelzebul, the prince of demons. In other words, he's, he's not from God. He's from Satan. He's demonic. And Jesus says this is pretty ridiculous because in Matthew 12, starting with verse 25, he says, Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided itself against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? In other words, it makes no sense at all to say I'm from Satan. I'm Satan driving out Satan? Think about it, guys. That just doesn't make any sense at all. And he says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom do you guys, your sons, cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. And then he says this, but if by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The sign that the kingdom is here and right now is that these demons are leaving. Jesus is demonstrating his power over the demons. So this rebel king has has gained control, and when Jesus comes onto this earth, he's, he's well aware of it. And his apostles are well aware of it. So much so that when Jesus um, speaks in John, and this comes up several different times, he's, he uses references like this. He calls him the prince or the ruler of this world. The ruler of this world. Um, Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. And then Paul writes to the Corinthian church and calls him the god of this world. Pretty lofty terms, right? Pretty lofty terms. Jesus recognized There is somebody who's gained a lot of control in this world. It's Satan. Sixty-some years after Jesus died, John writes a letter. And In his letter in 1 John, he's had all all these decades of experience of watching things unfold. He says this, And we know we are from God, and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. The whole world lies under its power. Do you see that? You know, the Bible speaks of this um, evil power, not just one person, but a whole network hierarchy. There's, there's dominions and principalities, rulers, powers. All these are speaking of an organized system. Well, how is it manifest? How is, where is Satan functioning? Where's his headquarters? Where, where is he sending people out? Well, he's, he only has power through the people he can use. And you think about it, think of all the sectors of life and how, how Satan is using them and leverage them for his purposes. Now, I know there are good things that can happen in all these, but think about all the evil that happens in them as well. For example, think of, think of the media. Think of, think of movies and music. Is it, is it always glorifying to God, or is there a bunch of really bad stuff out there? Sometimes it's really hard just to watch, find a good movie on TV. I mean, we look at business and economics There's some good businesses out there for sure, but there are many that are evil. Uh, Are you aware that one of the biggest businesses in our culture, far bigger than the entire Disney operation, is pornography? You realize that is huge? It's huge. Satan has leveraged the business world. We got education, particularly higher education, where where God's name can't be mentioned and and people are silenced to speak about him. The, The justice system, how, how that's corrupted, particularly in places all around the world where bribes are accepted and people can't get a fair trial. Uh, we, we see it in the arts, and we see it in science, how it's looked through, through the lens of, of human, uh, our humanness, not through the lens that God made this world. You know, we push God out. We're going to look at it from a human perspective. But the two that I think are the most dominant where Satan has really, really leveraged power is one, religion. Of course, uh, God's working through his people. That's, that's a part of it. But you know, a majority of the people in the world are not Christian. There's three billion people in the world who claim to be um, Hindu or Muslim. And they're going in a very different direction in some aspects than the Christianity. Jesus said, I am the way, not I am one of the ways. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there's, there's all these other religious systems that have risen up and, uh, and people are drawn to it and people are living in bondage to rituals and rules trying to measure up to appease the gods or their version of God when Jesus came to give freedom and abundant life. And people are enslaved to this. How, how did that happen? Well, because of this evil power out there. And then we see it very vividly in governments. I mean, think through history of some of the wicked leaders I mean, we can go back in ancient history, but I want to take you just in the past 100 years. For example, in 1975 to 1979, a leader by the name of Pol Pot ruled in Cambodia, and he wiped out nearly 20% of the population. Kim Jong-il from North Korea built up his army while a million people in his country starved to death. We have Joseph Stalin, infamous leader of the uh, former Soviet Union, estimated to put 20 million people to death. And, and the bully Adolf Hitler who pushed his way across Europe and Northern Africa and tortured and killed 11 million Jews. Let me just ask you, when you think of the kind of mind that would do these sorts of things, it's diabolical. It seems like it's gotta be influenced by some evil, wicked power out there. And Satan is willing to use whoever he can use. I wanna just caution you Sometimes you'll hear people saying, well, if we could just get a Christian uh, leader in office, if we can just get a Christian mayor, a Christian president, I just want to caution you, that's a danger. Our, our confidence is not in our president, it's not in our government, it's in our God. Our leaders will let us down, and they will deceive us. You know, Satan says, masquerades as an angel of light, and that's why you'll, you'll rarely hear. In fact, I honestly I say, I've never heard a political candidate say, I don't believe in God. Have you? They all believe in God. And we think, well, if that person believes in God, he becomes in power, then things will really get good. But look at what's happened the last several decades. Because politicians, not all, but many of them just know, here's what Christians want to hear. And we'll give them what they want to hear because they're pretty gullible. I love our country. I don't know if it's the greatest country on the planet. It's a very good country. I've been very blessed here. But my loyalty is primarily to my God, not to the United States of America. Because you'll find, and you're going to be pushed as the years go on, sometimes to make choices between your country and your God. And it needs to be to your God. There's this rebel king that has risen in power and his name is Satan. In his book... um, The insurgents, Frank Viola writes of the kingdom and says, the gospel was an announcement, the heralding, that Jesus of Nazareth had come into this world as a true emperor, launching a new era of peace, salvation, and blessing, and because of it, everything has changed. This was the explosive gospel of the kingdom. If you remember, right after Jesus was baptized, it was like he was anointed with the Holy Spirit as baptism, and the first thing he did under the direction of the Holy Spirit was go in the wilderness and do battle with Satan. Satan. It was like, let's get this on. And he says, I'll do this without eating for 40 days. So Satan bombards him with temptation after temptation for 40 days. And one of those temptations was he took him to a high mountain and somehow, I think through almost uh, a spirit realm vision, saw the kingdoms of the world. And Satan said to Jesus, they could all be yours in all their glory if you'll do just one thing, bow down to me. And Jesus says, ain't gonna happen because that belongs to me, not you. And when Jesus came, he began a mission of reclaiming what rightfully belonged to him. A mission of resuming his rightful place as king and reclaiming what belongs to him. I mentioned to you that story. I jumped ahead a little bit earlier, but the story of of Jesus casting the demon out of that man, saying the kingdom has arrived with my presence. He goes on to say that, you know how you defeat the strong man? You bind him up, and then you plunder his home. And what he was saying was, when I cast out demons, I'm binding the strong man, which is Satan, and I'm reclaiming these individuals back for me. Jesus is on a mission to reclaim what was stolen, primarily the people that have been enslaved by Satan. He wants to claim them back for himself. And so we find in scripture that, that when Jesus arrived, the moment he arrived, the announcement came that this is a this is a new era. There's a new sheriff in this town. And he's gonna take things back. He's gonna do it with power. As we begins to to move through and start to expand his kingdom. It's like a mustard seed that's gonna grow and grow and grow. It's like light that's, that's pushing into the darkness. The darkness is going to diminish while the light grows. And so he's find through his ministry and then through the book of Acts, this, this kingdom is growing. When Paul is called to go into these darkest areas, the regions where the Gentile lived, Gentiles live, pe- people who don't have scriptures, people who didn't, lived in darkness their whole life, he said, my mission is to go And turn them from the power of darkness to the power of light. From the power of Satan to the power of God. That's my mission. I met a gal after the last service, and uh, she's a high school student. She's been coming here for a couple months, and she says she wants to get baptized. And I said, That is awesome. I said, Why do you want to get baptized? I always like to hear the reason. And she said, I I don't know. I said, you don't know. I said, there's got to be a reason why you want to get baptized. And she said, I like the stuff I'm hearing about. And I want it for my life. I said, did you grow up in a home that went to church? And she goes, no. She goes, so this is all new to you? She goes, yeah. I've never heard this stuff before. And I said, you know what? That's the faith of a child. I says, I don't have all the answers. I don't understand it all. I just, I just know this is the way I want to live. This is the way I desire to live. And uh, we'll talk with more, more to her about her decision. But I thought that's a beautiful thing because Jesus' kingdom is a good kingdom. And he's an awesome king. We'll learn more about that as we go through this series on the kingdom. But, but he's a powerful kingdom king. And when the religious leaders saw Jesus gaining popularity, they said, we gotta get rid of this guy. And so what, what happened? It's not, it was not only a, a political move against Jesus, there was a spiritual move against Jesus. It says that Satan actually entered Judas to betray his master. Jesus betrays Judas. Judas betrays Jesus. Jesus is brought before the religious leaders. He goes before Herod and the Sanhedrin. Then he goes before Pilate. And Pilate, who's the Roman procurator, says, hey, the rumor is you're a king. Is that true? Jesus says, it's true. I am a king. But not like they think. My kingdom is not of this world, he said. You might have seen those bumper stickers sometimes. Not of this world. So he's speaking of, My kingdom's not of this world. What does it mean? It's, is it, is it otherworldly? Is it from another dimension? I think what Jesus was getting at was this kingdom did not arise from this world. It was not like, it's not like your other kingdoms. It's a different kind of a kingdom. It's not of this world. But yes, I am a king. And so Pilate agrees with the religious leaders and says, we ought to crucify him. They take him, they beat him, they put a robe around his bloody body, they slap a crown of thorns on his head and stick a reed in his hand like a staff. They go, oh, king of the Jews, king of the Jews. They mock him in worship. And ironically, this became the coronation of the king. That God used this despicable behavior to say, You're, you're just proclaiming the real truth. That my son, who you're torturing right now, who you're going to crucify, is indeed the rightful king. He doesn't wear a crown like the emperors of Rome. He wears this kind of crown, crown of thorns. But in every real respect, he is a king. And they christen him as king with their spit. He's buried in a tomb. After his death, he raises from the dead. He's installed at the right hand of God in power and given a name above every name. That name, Philippians 2, says that name is Lord. Do you know what Lord means? King, the rightful king. It says in the book of Colossians, as Paul writes to to the church there, he explains what happened on the cross. And listen to his description in um, Colossians 2. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So we were forgiven because our debt was erased. But something else happened. Listen to this. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, these spiritual powers. he, He disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus defeated Satan and his powers with his death on the cross, overcame sin and death and all of its consequences. And so now when we put our trust in Jesus, Paul wrote also to the um, Colossian church, this happens, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Every time a person puts their faith in Christ, they get moved from one kingdom to the other. So you and I are all part of a kingdom, whether you've chosen to or not. See, what's interesting in an election is when you don't cast a vote, you've already voted. People, people a couple of years ago says, I don't like either political candidate, I'm not going to vote. You realize that, that, and I don't care who you voted for, if you voted for, if you said, I don't like either candidate, your, your failure to vote for, say, Hillary, meant Donald needed one less vote. Your failure to vote... Uh, for Donald, meant Hillary needed one less vote. That your failure to vote actually was a vote. And some of you says, well, I never actually voted that Satan would be my king. You didn't have to. You already did it when you said Jesus isn't my king. So you are by default under his authority. You are by decision moved to a new authority. You have to make that decision. To give your life to Christ. And why would you want to be part of this perishing kingdom that's shrinking and one day will be abolished forever? Why would not you want to be part of this glorious, great, expanding kingdom and the free invitation to be part of it? See, Jesus says, he says, the, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Meaning, I'm, I'm on the move and we're reclaiming territory here. And those gates of hell, they're coming down. The kingdom's going to keep moving forward. Why wouldn't you want to say, yeah, I'm getting on board with that? You can do that today. The kingdom of God is now. Do you know what else is right now? Your opportunity to say yes to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so we're going to sing about the lordship of Christ. He really is king. And I'm going to have you stand and ask our prayer partners just to be available up front to anyone here today that maybe you're wrestling with this issue or maybe you've never fully declared. See, I grew up going to church thinking that just somehow by going to church I was on God's side. That doesn't make it that true. A lot of religious people are on the wrong side of the fence. You have to choose to come under the authority of Jesus to confess with your mouth this truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And maybe like the family that just did that 40 minutes ago is what you need to do with your life. So let's sing and worship. And let's surrender to Jesus today. Will you do that?